0: Thanks for tuning in to this week's sermon from Oak Hill Church in Humboldt, Iowa. We pray that it helps you to know Christ, grow in Christ, and sow Christ wherever you are. For more information about who we are and what we're doing, go to oakhillhumboldt.org. This morning, I invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, if you don't have a Bible with you, the words will be up there on the screen in back of me. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we'll get there in just a moment. I have a burden this morning, and it's, it's a growing burden, a growing vision that's coming out of this book of 1 Corinthians. It's these two words, saints together saints together. What does that mean? We learned a couple weeks ago that to be a saint isn't some uh, special class of Christian. It's not one who has died and now is being worshiped and venerated for being some standout Christian. No. Whenever the Bible talks about saints, it refers to all believers in Jesus Christ. Every one of us who has seen our need for a Savior who has admitted our sin, and has seen Christ as the only one who has come to die the death we deserve, to take our punishment for our sin, and has risen again from the grave, and we embrace Christ as our Lord and Savior. If that's true of you today, you have a new identity. God has called you as a saint. We are saints. The word itself means to be set apart, sanctified. Made holy because of our connection with Jesus Christ. And so when we have faith in Jesus, God pronounces us to be sanctified. We are now holy in His sight because of Jesus. That's our position with Christ and it will not change. Now we make progress in this holiness all the way to the end. We follow Jesus, only Jesus, all the way. To the end. So we are called to be saints together. Now, take a look at this picture up here. Uh, This picture is worth a thousand words. And we're so thankful for our creative uh, planning team. Uh, Christina Kane uh, came up with this logo here that uh, signifies just the centrality of the cross and how we're united around Jesus and what Christ has done for us there at the cross. And notice how this cross and our unity around the cross is permeating outward into our community, into humble Iowa, and and all across the globe. So so this is a vision that we see from the Apostle Paul uh, breathed out by God in the book of 1 Corinthians, and I want us to own it. I want you to own this. If you're Father of Jesus, you're a saint, you're holy, you've been made to be different and you make a difference in this world by being different, by shining the light of Christ out into your community. And this is a vision that I pray we would grow into more and more. Now this vision can only happen as we keep our eyes on Jesus, as we keep our eyes fixed on the cross of Christ Jesus. When we look elsewhere, problems begin to unfold. When the gospel is no longer central, things begin to fall apart. You know this is true in your own life, right? You've experienced this. When the gospel is no longer central, things begin to fall apart. Perhaps you've been thinking so much on yourself, you've been dwelling inward. To the point where Jesus is now in the background or even on the periphery of your life, you are central and you wonder why you're feeling so frustrated with life. Perhaps it's in your marriage. Some of you are going through struggles in your marriage and, and maybe it's because there's a problem in your marriage that you're uplifting as the thing that you're focusing on instead of the grace and the love of Jesus shown to you through the cross. Perhaps it's in parenting. Uh, Maybe you have a particular uh, trouble that's going on in the home and your, your eyes are just fixed there on perhaps one of your children and maybe their waywardness or perhaps their behavior and you've forgotten the big picture that only Jesus can change the heart of your child. And so when the gospel is no longer central... Things begin to fall apart. It's true in our lives. It's true in our family life. It's true in church life. Problems don't just arise out of nowhere. Tensions just don't grow on their own. We see in this church at Corinth that division arose when the gospel was no longer central. This is what was happening at Corinth. Corinth. Though they had been saved by God's grace, called to be saints together, they got their eyes off Jesus. So it comes as no surprise that division only followed. So let's listen to Paul's words as he answers this question of how am I going to deal with this division? Verses 10 to 17, this is the word of God. Paul writes, I appeal to you brothers by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanas beyond that I do not know whether I baptized anyone else for Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power so Paul begins here with this plea for unity because he knows what's at stake here look at verse 10 again I appeal to you brothers By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So, this is the summary verse of this section of Scripture. It also can summarize chapters 1 to 4. Unity accounts for 25% of the book. Of 1 Corinthians. It's a huge issue for Paul as it was for Jesus. You may recall in Matthew 16, Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That was a promise. Jesus is going to build his church. And then he adds this prayer in John 17. He's praying for unity, that they may be one as we are one, as I and the Father are one. And so this was a huge issue for the Lord Jesus, and Paul is just echoing this focus on unity. Notice he says, I appeal to you, brothers. This is a compassionate plea for his family there at Corinth. We need one another, he's saying. I'm I'm pleading with you. This is important. I love you. We're family. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of Jesus, Jesus. By the authority of Christ himself, on the behalf of Jesus Christ, I'm coming to you pleading for unity. And notice there's a purpose, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind in the same judgment. Now what does that mean? That we all agree and we're of the same mind? Does Paul want us to be spiritual clones of one another? Is this uniformity that he's after? I don't think so. Ought we to agree on every single thing as a church family? I'm borrowing what one pastor used as an illustration. There are things that should be in the open hand and things that should be in the closed hand when it comes to church life. So when it comes to uh, the closed hand over here, these are the things um, that we will not, we will not divide over, we will not discuss and have it up for discussion, and these are things like the person of Jesus Christ, the Trinity, the authority, the inspiration of the Bible, that this is true. We will not bend on that. We will not bend on the truth that you are saved only by grace through faith. We will not bend on that. That's what we'll die for. But over here in the open hand, these are issues that are up for discussion. Things like how we do church life, uh, the methodology we use, uh, how can we reach our culture and be relevant in this day and age. The the finer points of theology that that we're unsure about in terms of the end times. We we can have discussion about those kinds of things. So there's an open hand and there's a closed hand when it comes to our unity. But the word here that Paul uses for same mind, what he has in mind here, this, this word literally means saying the same things. We're to say the same things, and that, that seems kind of confusing. Are we to just kind of parrot back to one another the same kinds of things and, and be robots together? No. What he means by that is these Corinthians were saying different things. In verse 12, we're going to see how one group is saying, well, I follow Paul. Another is saying, I follow Apollo. So another says, I follow Cephas. So they're saying different things. So I think what he's getting at here when he's talking about the same mind is Paul is after unity internally. Unity, how we think and what we value and and who we worship, we're unified in that. You can think about it in this way, when uh, RVTV came here to Humboldt and uh, kind of went right downtown and began to interview folks and here's, uh, what's his name, I can't remember the... The guy that's doing the interview with Dallas Clark, got a Band-Aid on his nose. Some of you know his name. <laughs> anyway, What's his name? Okay, Keith Murphy. Yeah. So here he is. He's doing this interview with Dallas uh, Clark, And of course we know who Dallas Clark is rooting for uh, with the rivalry here. And you see the banner up above our town, a town divided. Right, so, we would expect this, right? Reporters come, uh, there's this Cyhawk rivalry. Some are going to say, hey, what team are you rooting for? I'm rooting for the Hawkeyes. What team are you rooting for? I'm rooting for the Cyclones. And there are a few uh, just kind of quirky people out there that are rooting for the Panthers. You and I, Panthers. Um, but, but we would expect there to be this, this rivalry, right? There's some division here. Perhaps you even live in a house divided. All right? Some of you, I know how you do. Um, but listen, that's different than if a reporter came here to Oak Hill Church, all right, and asked the question, so, so what, which team are you on? I hope that we would have an agreement. We would say the same thing. Well, I'm, I'm on Team Jesus, right? All of us are wearing the same jersey, right? We've all got Jesus on the jersey, number one on the front, right? We're all worshiping Jesus. It's all about Jesus here. We're not divided over that. In fact, the sign out front. There's a reason why we put that. We are all about Jesus here. That's what we want to be about. Our mission statement says we want to know Christ and to grow in Christ and to sow Christ all for the glory of God. So this is about Jesus. Our church is to be all about Christ. Sadly, that's not what the Corinthians were saying. They weren't saying the same thing. They were dividing They weren't of the same mind. They weren't unified. Look at verses 11 and 12. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos or I follow Cephas or I follow Christ. And so this is a plea for unity around Jesus only. Around Jesus only. Back in verse 11... Paul hears reports from Chloe's people. Now, who's Chloe? It's a nice name, uh, but but evidently, uh, she was more than likely a widow, a, a wealthy widow, a prominent woman in this church who was in communication with Paul. Perhaps she had been generous in supporting this new church in Corinth, regardless, Paul Receives this word, this verbal report from perhaps her family members and friends that there is division in the church. And so Paul is responding to a real problem. In fact, in verses 1 to 6, he's responding to this verbal report. He's now in Ephesus and he's writing back to Corinth. And in chapters 7 to 16, Paul is actually writing in response to a letter that he had received. In chapter 7, Later on, we'll see this, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So he's going to go on and give instruction to this church based upon a letter that he received from them. And so this was Paul's response. He's hearing from Chloe's people that there was quarreling among these Christians. Specifically in verse 12, Paul says, what I mean by that is each one of you says, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but as I read through that, this sounds like a bunch of middle school cliques is what it sounds like to me. I mean, this sounds like a popularity contest. And you remember, division happens when the gospel is no longer central. So their eyes were no longer on Jesus, they were now dividing over different ministers and leaders. They were picking sides. Imagine this. Some sided with Paul. I follow Paul. Now, Paul, as we know, was the one who founded this church. And perhaps he had preached the gospel, and some of these folks have come to know Jesus Christ, and so they're, they're tied to Paul. I follow Paul. He's my guy. Even though he's left... Man, I still follow him. Others sided with Apollos. I follow Apollos. Now, who was Apollos? Apollos was the pastor who took over when when Paul uh, left to go to Ephesus. You remember the apostle Paul, he had a ministry to where he was planting churches all over in different cities. And so after 18 months, he left to Ephesus and he's writing back. In the meantime, Apollos became the new pastor. This man was known for his ability to speak. In Acts chapter 18 is what we learn about him. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures and being fervent in spirit. He was bold. He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. And so there we get a picture of Apollos. He was known as someone who was a very gifted speaker, He could enunciate the gospel with clarity. He was an eloquent man, and he was preaching powerfully. Contrast that with the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 10.10. This is what was written about him. For they say his letters are weighty and strong. So yeah, we agree, man, he's a strong writer, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. In other words, we don't find him very impressive, you remember, he's suffered immensely. I'm not sure how much at this point, but this man came in weakness and oftentimes with just the simplicity of the gospel. And so there were divisions. Well, I follow Paul, but I, want, I follow Apollo. Still, others sided with Cephas. That's the original name for Peter in Aramaic. Now, why Peter? Well, Peter, as we recall, was known as the first leader of the original 12 disciples, right? He was called the Rock. And, and Peter spent three years with Jesus. And no doubt, he, he came into Corinth on a number of occasions. And so many people sided with Peter, like he's the guy who spent time with Jesus, like face to face. He was the original leader. So I, I, follow, I follow Cephas, I follow Peter. And then you have this last group, this other group, that says, I follow Christ. And I I think if if we would look at this, you know, lineup, we would say, Well, that's my group, you know? I'm, I'm following Christ. But I want to tell you, this is the most dangerous and most spiritually immature group of all. Most commentators agree that there were those who were somewhat disgusted by these folks who were lining up with a certain leader. And so they were saying, well, I don't follow any man. I follow Christ. In other words, I'm self-righteous. I don't follow any man. I don't need any spiritual leader in my life. I've got Jesus. It's just me and Jesus. And this was dangerous Because they were going off a path where I don't need to listen to Paul. He's writing back this letter. I got Jesus, right? I'm just going to stay in line with him. I don't want to follow any human leader. And here's where all of these groups have forgotten something, that we are to follow Christ alone. But for those, especially in this camp, who who are so arrogant that they couldn't even follow a leader, Paul himself tells them in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, "For." or follow me, he says, as I follow Christ. So if you're following me, it's only as you're pursuing Jesus, because I'm here to point you to Jesus. It's not my authority, it's the authority in the Word of God, and the Word of Christ, and you're following me only as much as I follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is a healthy respect we ought to have for our spiritual leaders. We don't elevate them, no. But we do show them respect. By the way, I'm so thankful for our church that we are in a place of unity right now. And I, I am so um, thankful that I get to work with uh, pastors here with me, Pastor Josh and Pastor Johnny and the elders, that we are unified in this. It's, it's not this game of how we can one-up one another. We are here as servants of Christ to shepherd you toward him. But one warning, I want to give just one warning today, and that is this. Some of us, I think all of us, have the tendency in our hearts to line up in an unhealthy way and have our loyalties to a certain leader or preacher or someone who we think is rather impressive. And so there there may be the tendency to think, well, I've got so and so's commentary on the Bible, and whatever he says, that's true. Or, I listen to this podcast because that's where I get fed. And you sound like you're super spiritual when you say it, but you're revealing your immaturity. Listen, there are many of us who are running to a certain preacher or pastor to be fed, and we're neglecting the Bible all throughout the week. Listen to us. When we preach from this pulpit here, this is to be a catalyst for your time at home. Monday and Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, we want you to be opening up the Word of God and and seeing for yourself what Christ has said to you in His Word, not to just be dependent from Sunday to Sunday on, on the preaching of the Word. This is vital, but so is your time. With God in His Word. So take steps. If you've got questions about that, love to help you. If you feel like you're kind of lost when it comes to navigating the Bible, that's okay. Just, just start in. Maybe it's in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Begin reading there uh, just a few minutes every day. So these Corinthians, they were acting rather childish, middle schoolish, maybe even babyish. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul goes on to say this But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, you are not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way. For one one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos. Are you not being merely human? So, so Paul is, in a loving way, He's he's pushing them to be spiritually mature, isn't he? Put your childish ways behind you. Stop being so jealous of leaders. Stop drinking from the bottle and start dining on the word of God for yourself. And so this is a plea for unity around Jesus only This is a challenge from the Apostle Paul, and he punctuates that challenge with three rhetorical questions. His purpose in doing so is to help them to see how silly this really is on the one hand. It's really silly that they're acting this way. But on the other hand, show them that the glory of Christ is at stake here. The glory of Christ is at stake. Look at verse 13. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I would have loved to, to see Paul's, like, face, facial expression when he's saying these questions. Obviously, the answer to all these three questions is no, absolutely no. The first question he asks, is Christ divided? Which implies that they are dividing the body of Christ. Different camps, different teams, lining themselves up with different leaders, they're dividing the body of Christ. And that can't happen because we've, called, we've been called to be saints together. One family, one body, united in Jesus. Notice he emphasizes this with love, though, and tenderness when he, when he says in verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters, you're, you're my family here. We're united together. In verse 11, he says the same thing. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my, my brothers, my, my brothers and sisters. This ought not to be so. He's telling them we're family, so stop dividing. Second question he asks: was Paul crucified for you? Again, I think he's trying to shock them, and how silly that sounds. Paul is not their savior, he's just a servant. So he's saying, stop treating me like I'm someone special. Jesus is the only special one. He's the focus, not me. Third question he asks. Or were you baptized in the name of Paul?" Now, evidently, people were actually taking pride in having been baptized by Paul. And it seems rather middle school again, right? Like, Paul baptized me, right? So Paul's my guy. (laughs) I mean, that's silly. Paul's basically saying, big deal, right? It doesn't matter who baptized you. It doesn't matter. It's not about me, it's not about my name, it's about Jesus and his name. You belong to him and not to me. Notice he says in verses 14 to 16, he elaborates on this point. He says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. So he's saying, hey, I'm glad, actually, that I didn't baptize a bunch of you, because maybe there would be some kind of growing, um, you know, following that I would have, and I don't want that. I baptized Crispus and Gaius. Crispus was a Jewish synagogue leader who came to faith in Jesus Christ. Gaius was one who showed him hospitality as he he wrote this letter. And so he is wanting badly for the focus to be off him and onto Jesus. By the way, in verse 16, I think he has somewhat of a senior moment here. He says, I did baptize. Oh, that's right. Um, I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. And and I just love verse 16 because it shows the humanity of the apostle Paul. So here we like elevate him sometime to like the super apostle. He's writing, being carried along by the spirit of God. And then he's like, oh yeah. Maybe his secretary pointed out to him. Yeah, but (laughs) didn't you forget Stephanus and his household? Anyhow, Paul is after Jesus being the focus. In fact, in chapter three, verse five, he says this, what then is Apollos What is Paul? Servants. Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. So he wants to make it abundantly clear. This unity is around Jesus only. So this is a plea for unity. Around Jesus only. And here's the reason. Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So listen, we fight for unity around Jesus only Because we don't want to see the cross be emptied of its power. And that's a pretty piercing phrase for us pastors. But look at verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So the first phrase, for Christ did not send me to to baptize, it seems a little confusing for us when we consider the fact that Jesus himself gave the great commission Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So is Paul saying we we shouldn't be sent to baptize? No. He's saying that preaching the gospel has priority and primacy in his ministry. He is not about baptizing baptizing people to gain a following, to get his own little group of Paul's followers. That's not what baptism is about. After all, we get baptized to glorify Jesus for what he has done for us. Preaching the gospel is first. Baptism comes second. It's secondary. By the way, for those of you who are considering or curious about baptism, I really do want to invite you to this class coming up October 6th. Um, we see in baptism a picture of what Christ has done for us in the gospel. And so if you've seen somebody go underneath the water and come back up, it's a picture of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection from the grave, and that we're united to Christ in that. Through faith in Jesus, now we're his, we're connected to him, and it's a beautiful way of proclaiming the gospel. And so that's your uh, next step. If you've taking that first step of following Jesus. And so, verse 17, Paul says this phrase here that captivated me in my study here. Verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. What does that mean? He came to them not with words of eloquent wisdom, or clever words, you didn't come that way, lest the cross be emptied of its power. So, how can the cross be emptied of its power? I don't know how many years ago it was when we were living in um, near Louisville, Kentucky, and uh, we uh, heard of a guy named Rob Bell. Some of you know that name. Uh, he had a mega church at the time in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Church was just growing really, really rapidly. And he was actually on tour around the United States. It was called God's um, Aren't Angry Tour. And it intrigued me because I had kind of read one of his books and I saw problems in his theology. But I wondered, what's the big deal with this guy? Why is this so captivating for so many uh, in you know, the region? And so my wife and I went along with another couple. And uh, we walked in, and you can show the picture of him. So he comes out on stage, and no doubt this guy was a dramatic master storyteller. I mean, he, he just unfolded in an hour and a half, this, this captivating presentation where everybody was just hanging on his words. He was, he was bringing up the point that, that all of us, um, from the beginning of humanity, we have all wanted to appease the gods. We know there are forces of nature that are coming upon us. And so it was believed that you had to sacrifice to a God in order for that God to be happy to you, happy with you, and and give you rain or give you sunshine or whatever it was. And his point as as he went through all of this and he tried to connect it a little bit with the Bible, but at the very end, his point was simply this. This God is not angry with you. This God loves you. And I remember getting up from my seat after an hour and a half of just just gripping story, dramatic flair, a lot of eloquence, feeling sick to my stomach. He left out the main thing. He was talking about sacrifices, he was talking about God, and he never mentioned sin once and never mentioned the cross once. And so his point to all of us was, God loves you, he's not angry with you, a half gospel at best. Never once did he say that this God is actually angry with us, and that's why Jesus came to this earth to be punished on our behalf. You know this, right? We are all sinners in this room. And the reason why Jesus had to come was to take the punishment for our sin. The sacrifice that Jesus bore for us on the cross was a costly sacrifice, and it tells us that our sin is really bad. When we see how ugly and how bloody that cross really is, It should show us that's how depraved we really are. And that's what we needed to save us from our sins. And so when Christ came to die on the cross, he came to break our pride. So what Paul is saying here is this. You can't be clever and preach the cross at the same time. You can't have people be impressed with you and then just leave out and push out Jesus, that's going to empty the cross of its power. And Paul wanted none of it. None of it. In fact, I think Paul deliberately took it down a notch in Corinth. He did nothing to bolster his ego. We see In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The simple gospel that a child can understand. And this cross, when we look at it, when we gaze upon the cross, it ought to break us. It ought to break us afresh. The cross kills our pride, it wrecks us, and it brings us into reliance upon Jesus. How can you stand before the cross and boast in yourself? How can you look at the cross and think, I'm really impressive, look at all the great things I'm doing? You can't. The cross humiliates you and reminds you, you're a sinner, and Christ had to die for you, and that shows how much he loves you, by the way. So, we need the cross. Guys, if we're going to have unity, it starts with humility by gazing at the cross together. Day after day and Sunday after Sunday and never moving beyond it. There's a foolishness to the cross. We're going to see that next week. The word of the cross in verse 18 is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It makes no sense to the one who's on the pathway to destruction. But to us who are being saved, it is powerful. It is powerful. This God came down to me and took my punishment so that I didn't have to. He's offering me a free gift to just repent of my sins and believe in Jesus, and I can have hope, hope of eternal life. So as we close, division happens when we've forgotten the foolishness of the cross. That's how it happens. When we divide, we're full of pride. And so what I'm praying for is that we would remain unified. That we would be unified around Jesus and Jesus alone, and we would continue to gaze upon the the power of this cross and be humbled by it, and that we would die to self-reliance, we would die to pride, we would die to boasting in ourselves, and the life of Christ would rise up in us, and we would be able to say, we're all about Jesus here. We're all about Jesus. Come join us. Come join us. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled by the cross of Jesus. We're reminded that we are sinners and that you have been so gracious to us. You saw us running the other way as sheep who have gone astray, and you came after us and took our punishment upon that bloody tree. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you that you rose again and you call us today saints, holy and set apart because of the blood of Jesus. And so as we close this service, I pray that our eyes would be fixed on the glory of Christ. This is not about us, not to us, not to us, but to your name be the glory, Jesus. We want this church to continue to be fixed upon Christ and his cross for us and never to move away from it.